0: Hey, Mark. I've got a question for you. Sure, Paco. What is it? Is the sun
1: going to rise tomorrow? Is that a trick question? Maybe, but just give me your answer. I'd say that unless there's some kind of cataclysmic event where the Earth or the sun is destroyed or something along those lines, then, yeah, the sun will rise tomorrow. Because you've seen it rise every morning for thousands of days. Yeah. Right.
0: So maybe you'd say that the sun will probably rise tomorrow but we can't be 100% certain. Yeah, that's right. So isn't that what we should say about everything we observe? The sun will probably rise tomorrow because we've seen it happen thousands of times. If I drop this gin and tonic, it will probably hit the ground because we've seen gravity work millions of times. But do we know for sure that the sun won't explode tomorrow or that the laws of physics won't suddenly change? Mm, I guess not. So can we really be certain about
1: anything we know? Maybe we'll find out on today's show.
2: Hey everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome
1: people like you. I'm Chad Allen. I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Sanders. And I'm Paco Allen.
2: So I wanted to kick off today's show with a brief primer on the difference between deductive and inductive reasoning. Primer and- or primer? I was gonna call that out. <laughs> thanks for <laughs> thanks, thanks going with primer. <laughs> uh, is is I, I I know that like Australian people say primer, <laughs> like Mark, <laughs> but <laughs> is, is primer not accepted pronunciation? or Are you just giving me a hard time or what?
0: I don't know. This shows this this episode is gonna be like a very british focused episode so <laughs> i just wanted to make sure that you mean well it's scottish
1: well right yeah it's yeah british. Uh, british yeah yeah oh yeah it's not yeah, english okay did, did they right. did they devolve recently no they didn't yeah, yeah they, they did, did. Dude, I, aren't you from there <laughs> like, <laughs> doesn't know who the prime minister uh, is, uh, doesn't
2: know uh, if scotland's <laughs> part of the country that
0: he's originally from <laughs> We've fully absorbed him into American culture. Jeez. Okay, all right. Deductive and inductive well, I could be reasoning. totally wrong
2: about the Scotland thing, yeah. also. Um, okay, deductive and inductive reasoning, and it'll become clear why I want to talk about these two things um, with respect to Paco and Mark's dialogue at the beginning of the show in just a minute. Um,
1: can we can we also refer to those dialogues as pac- Pacotric? <laughs> pacotric, like Socratic, but with Paco. Yep. No. Yes, yeah. we can. <laughs> if that'll stop us from talking about that, then yes. <laughs>
2: so, uh, so I want to talk about deduction and induction as two different kinds of reasoning. And the easiest way to think about this is, um, uh, I think about deduction as top-down reasoning and induction as bottom-up reasoning. So, in deduction. Um, we go from general rules to specific conclusions. So, a deductive argument looks something like this: All humans are mortal. Mark is a human, therefore, Mark is a mortal. Mark's immortal. Mark's a mortal. Oh. Mark is mortal. <laughs> I am the Highlander. <laughs> uh, sticking with our Scotland theme. Oh, very uh, good. <laughs> so, so let me say that again: All humans are mortal. Mark is a human. Mark is mortal. Let's, um, let's just test this out real quick. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. Let, okay, <laughs> you're gonna you're, you're gonna get ahead of me. So the we're way gonna, deduct- we're gonna murder Mark later in the show. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll test out the Mark is mortal part of this later. But but the reason that this works as a or the reason that we take this as an example of a deductive argument is that if the first two statements are true, then the third statement is true. By definition, right? If all humans are mortal and Mark is a human, then Mark is mortal. And so deductive logic is really about relationships between statements. Like if the first two things are true, if humans are mortal and Mark is a human, then we can say without exception or doubt that that Mark is mortal. And so it, it does give us sort of like a conclusion about the world, but only if the first two premises are true. Right. Can, um, I,
1: can I? I've often heard that referred to as a syllogism. Would that be correct? Would that be accurate? I don't know. You tell us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, <laughs> only, only, I can't
2: rem- I don't remember anything from my logic class okay. except that I got an A in it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that leaves us with a question. I think about like how do we know things about the real world? So how would we know anything about the first two pre- premises of that deductive argument? Um, there are a couple of facts in there about the real world. Um, one of them is all humans are mortal, and the other is Mark is a human. And so just take, for example, the the statement uh, all humans are mortal. Like, how do we know that? It's much like the the way that we know that the sun will rise we know that all humans are mortal because we've seen lots of humans die and we actually don't have an example of a human who is immortal highlanders aside so this kind of inductive reasoning is called bottom up and it's sort of different from deductive reasoning because it goes from lots of uh, specific examples to a general conclusion, right? So we've seen lots of specific examples of humans dying, so we conclude that humans are mortal. And that's a, uh, you know, that's sort of like a generalized right. rule. Past past
0: patterns, we assume, predict right. future outcomes.
2: Right. Okay, so let's jump into the problem of inductive reasoning. And there, there are a few different ways of framing the problem, and it's kind of evolved historically. But let's talk about what... Um, what we'll call the old problem of induction, um, which, and by the way, this problem goes back a long ways all the way back to the, the ancient Greeks. Um, and there's a sort of skeptical school of thought, um, in ancient Greek philosophy, which arises out of the problem of induction, but we'll constrain ourselves to, to the problem of induction as it's been discussed in modern philosophy. And that sort of starts with Hume, um, and so Hume famously argued that um, that induction or inductive reasoning will never lead to real knowledge. And if you recall from an earlier episode, I believe it's episode three, where we discussed uh, Gettier problems. We talked about the definition of knowledge as being a justified true belief. Um, and Hume says that induction is never going to get us to that kind of belief. We can't have any kind of deductive proof that induction is a valid form of reasoning. Like there's no sort of argument we can construct that says induction always works. Um, and we can't rely on the fact that induction has worked a lot in the past to show that induction will work in the future because that's a circular argument.
0: It's using induction to prove that induction right. works.
2: So it so it's, it's hard to find a way out of this problem. Um, and it's essentially the problem that you guys outlined in the Socratic dialogue at the beginning of the show, um, which is that we end up in a place where we can't really obtain any knowledge about the world around us with absolute certainty. Right. And I, I mean, I think that one of the reasons that
0: this is important from kind of a practical day to day human standpoint is because we use inductive reasoning a lot, like like probably more than deductive reasoning. People use inductive reasoning to try to prove or understand what they know about the world. Like most of what we believe we know is based on inductive reasoning it's based on looking what at what's happened in the past looking at those patterns you know every day the sun rises when i touch boiling water every time i touch it it's hot you know if you have kids and you look at how kids learn it's it's that kind of pattern it's like doing something over and over and eventually you learn that the result is always the same and i'm either going to do that thing or not do that thing based on what the result is right so that's it's very much how we live our lives and how we believe that we acquire an understanding or a knowledge of how the world works. But when you look at how that type of, um, analysis of information in order to understand if you know something actually works, it, it seems pretty faulty. It seems like it's not a guarantee that you actually know something. Right.
2: Mm. Right. And we used to think that all swans were white, for example. And if you'd ask someone, what color are swans? before we had discovered black swans, everybody would have said, well, swans are white. Because all the
1: swans we could find were white. Um,
2: And so, I mean, I don't want to go too far like down the rabbit hole of philosophy of science, but even science, you know, is largely based on the practice of confirming um, or repeating previous experiments, right? And so those experiments sort of build evidence for theories by confirming previous observations.
0: Right, and and I think that we'll probably get into this maybe a little bit more further on in the show, but I think one of the reasons why Hume was so concerned about this is because, you know, he was developing all his ideas about the world and his philosophical points of view, you know, right after the first kind of big wave of enlightenment in Europe. Yeah. After Newton had done all of his great work yep. and he was I think born, you know, 10 or 11 years before Newton passed away, right? So he, like Newton's kind of, you know, cosmic impact on the world and science and the way that people thought was still extremely fresh. And science was thought to be this thing that, this method that could prove and develop knowledge with kind of an absolute power,
2: right? And Hume was like, "Uh uh-oh.
0: right. But I think I think that most scientists today, when you talk to them about what the practice of science means and what the scientific method, how the scientific method operates, it's impacted by Hume's work, I think. But it's also, it doesn't use induction in a way that has absolute proof of right. knowledge, right? right? It's a much... It's got a little bit softer kind of corners to it. Well,
2: yeah, and I mean, the scientific method, as it's sort of presently understood, kind of takes induction into account in the sense that a valid scientific theory is one that is open to falsifiability. Right, right?
0: it's open to falsifiability, and it's about looking at past patterns and trying to... To confirm a hypothesis that
2: may eventually be proven otherwise by future observations
0: and i think that 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 this this the modern view of science probably has a lot to do with hume and and those kind of followed in his footsteps like the the holes that they poked in using induction as the kind of 100 percent proof that pure deduction can be used Right. right to uh you know to find
1: and and Hume's reputation um was was very low after his death they it was it was widely refuted and it was only within the last 100 150 years that he is really recognized for the insight that he did bring to the to the, the world of the philosophy like when after Newton died we were living in a very mechanical, predictable, understandable, mathematically stable universe, and, and Hume was saying, like, you know, actually, I, th- I think things are a lot more complicated than they first appear. <laughs> and everyone was like, uh, <laughs> shut up, atheist. <laughs> right. Um, get, get back in that bog. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, and now we, we know, with, the, with a lot more advancements in quantum science and so forth, we realize that there's a, there's a greater need for a certain amount of rationality. Yeah. Like, he he, he, he famously um, rejected a lot of, um, like, he was a great fan of uh, of Dave Descartes and the idea you can see that you know the ruthless practicality of reducing everything down to what he does know and what he doesn't know is a very strong part of his his theory. He even went to study. He went to live in La Flesche, which is where Descartes studied, uh, out of out of reverence for his for his forethought. Um, it, it's uh, a lot of uh, philosophy at the time uh, would, from an axiomatic point of view, rely very heavily on. Well, we've just proved God. So that's good, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then now we can we can reduce everything else down to liboa like, well, uh, and God. That's your summary of Descartes' first meditations.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I think Hume is a really
0: really interesting um, person, and uh, if a- any of these topics, because the, a lot of it, kind of the first half of this is going to be very much about David Hume's um, perspective on induction. And, you know, and if if you think any of that's interesting, I think that the the backstory on the guy who came up with a lot with these ideas is, is equally as interesting. Um, you yeah. know, because he, he did a lot more work uh, on trying to understand the human mind um, in the same way that yeah. he tackled this problem. I, was, I, I, yeah.
1: I'd also add that he wasn't even famous as a philosopher in his own lifetime. He was most famous for writing a multi-volume history of the British Isles. Which was most a,
2: people hated. Yeah. <laughs> no,
1: no, no, no. Most people hated his philosophical work. Yeah.
0: He was, rich and famous because of his history work and had a lot of people like banging down his door to continue to write more volumes of it and well, his response was basically like i'm too rich and lazy and fat which
2: is weird so
0: yeah to I mean, finish to finish this I, 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 12 I, I, volume you, you're saying
1: a scottish person is too <laughs> fats yeah sorry scottish
0: people <laughs> <laughs> was he, but was, I I think he moved to Scotland. No, I don't, he, like, was Scottish, he was Scottish, was he? Um, yeah.
1: He, he moved, he moved to France. He moved to, yeah. um, because he's basically like he was the second son of the family. He didn't have a, a very large allowance and his money would go farther in Europe than if he stayed in Scotland. Well, he also had a, supposedly uh, had a nervous that, breakdown before he moved to France. Yeah. yeah the, like the, a Quarter life crisis. Yeah. Quarter life I mean, crisis. Lot, at very the age conflicting. Of like 20. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they lived, they didn't 65. live as long, <laughs> did they? He died in
2: 65. <laughs> um, oh, no. Uh, Seventeen eleven to, I can't remember.
0: Actually yeah, he wasn't which. that old. He died of some kind of weird stomach. He, he cancer. He died of something. stomach cancer.
2: Yeah. I think he was only fifty. Actually,
0: um, he was young. I mean, he went to, he went to college when he was like twelve 10. or something like that. Yeah, his 10. brother, his brother his, was. He went yeah. to. He uh, brother was twelve at yeah. the time. Yeah. And then moved back home. Like he. Uh, he was, like, writing the work that he became famous for when he was in his, like, early 20s. Yeah, yeah isn't it yeah. crazy?
1: He went to university, went to Edinburgh University, one of the greatest universities in Europe, at the age of 10. Came back five years later and was like, yeah, I guess I learned some stuff. Not much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I learned I mean, more, more Greek and Latin, but yeah, so I just what? think it's
0: a different time, right? Like, when you're...
1: When people were smarter? Uh,
0: no, I just think when... You know, if if you were from an affluent family, like there wasn't, you know, like what what else are you going to do other than like go to school really early? And
2: I don't know. I mean, his, apparently his brother just kind of like hung out and like managed the farm. family fortune. Yeah, because yeah.
1: Yeah. that's that's the job of the first son to right. stay home yeah. and, right. and be rich. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, but I mean,
0: like, I don't, I don't think it was, it, I don't think it was uncommon for you know people to go off people of of wealth and opportunity to go off to university that young and speak five languages before they were 20 like it's just yeah. a different, kids
1: these days yeah. Yeah. L- language was a technology at the time it's like oh, are you going to learn to play a video game yeah or ancient greek you know whatever <laughs> <laughs> um, all right anyways okay back anyway
2: answer. so nonetheless right so so yeah it, when we start to think about Induction and inductive reasoning, it becomes clear that we're not going to have absolute certainty about any of our observations of the world, including our formulation of natural laws, the laws of physics, etc. We're never going to have 100% certainty about those. Nonetheless, it does seem like there are certain kinds of inductive statements like like the laws of physics and and the fact that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Like Those seem... That seems like high-quality inductive reasoning. High and, cash value, yes. to use the phrase uh, from before. From a, yeah, the the 20th century pragmatic phrase, yeah. Um, so Hume kind of lays out like the, what we call the old problem of induction, right, which is that, hey, we've got this problem that we're not going to know anything with 100% certainty. So let's like just take that as a given. But now we need to figure out why are some kinds of inductive reasoning better than other kinds of inductive reasoning? Right, but was that really Hume? Did, did Hume pose that question? Or yeah, was he that, did. He,
0: or was that more of Goodman's contribution to this puzzle?
2: I guess you could say that it's Goodman's contribution in terms of like talking about the old problem of induction versus the new problem, but Hume definitely does. And, and I guess part of this is just sort of like maybe partially due to Goodman's reading of Hume. But, but one of the things that Hume does say is that, that we tend to favor theories that have formed a habit in us to use his language and so this is actually like an idea that goodman tries to that nelson goodman who will talk about in a tries minute, to make trust try uh, ambiguous yeah he tries to rescue it essentially so so hume did try to s- sort of save induction by saying that that we should favor those theories again that we should favor those theories um that have formed a habit in us but most philosophers have sort of read that as Hume just kind of describing why we favor certain theories and not why we should favor them. And so that's kind of what contemporary or 20th century Anglo-American analytic philosophy has focused on is this problem of separating good induction from bad induction right. or... If, if induction isn't going to be a
0: 100% guaranteed proof of knowledge... But it can still be a good predictor of a good predictor of things, and a good kind of proxy for knowledge. Maybe like, how how do we know? How how can we differentiate between when induction is leading us to uh, a a, a good a good assumption about what's going to happen in the future, or a good assumption about how things work versus the kind of infinite cases where it can just like lead us astray.
2: Right. So now we kind of get to what we'll call the new problem of induction, which is exactly to that point how do we discriminate between good inductive reasoning and bad inductive reasoning and this conversation really centers around Nelson Goodman who was an American philosopher um who lived from 1906 to 1998 he did most of his work in the 60s and 70s and it- own
0: weed <laughs> what no that <laughs> is a in tribute to John Stewart's last day on The Daily Show, I thought I'd throw in a John Stewart.
2: Oh, right, reference,
0: <laughs> half picked. Thanks. No, that was good. Sixties and seventies, you know. Very, yeah. also very topical. Okay. Thank you. Yeah.
2: So he probably did do most of his work on the oh, topic weed. of induction. <laughs> on weed, yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, and so he, like, his work still remains kind, very much at the center of. Um, the contemporary debate about induction, and he sort of reframed Hume's question about how to distinguish between good induction and bad deduction, and sort of kind of gave a more crisp answer to that than Hume's answer about habits, and said that we should be trying to distinguish between law-like generalizations and non-law-like generalizations. So, if you remember going back to our discussion about induction versus deduction at the top of the show. We talked about induction as, as making uh, generalizations from lots of specific observations, right? So saying all swans are white from having seen lots of white swans or saying that the sun is going to rise tomorrow as a result of having seen lots of sunrises. And so Goodman says that one way to think about law-like generalizations is that they're capable of confirmation, while non-law-like generalizations are not capable of confirmation um and he would furthermore say that law-like generalizations are required for making predictions and those are really the the kinds of inductive conclusions that we want are ones that allow us to make predictions like so you know any like piece of quote-unquote knowledge that you come to via induction that doesn't allow you to predict what's going to happen in the world is kind of like a useless piece of right like you you can't
1: you can't prove there is no god because you can't prove a negative
2: right (laughs) yeah i mean
0: you know nelson goodman calls this the new riddle of induction and i think the word riddle is like the key part of that description you know because i i think it is he, he went to his grave not having found the answer to that riddle and i don't think anybody else really has ever since but it's and i think it's for this reason because it's I think pretty easy to come up with examples of induction that seem law like, and it's pretty easy to come up with wild kooky examples of induction that are not law like, but it's that middle ground where, you know, like all swans are white, you know, seemed like a really good law like piece of induction. Right. And then it's just that one time where it's like, Oh, Hey, look, uh, we've never been to this region of right,
2: but you know, I think that 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 all swans are are white was actually a quality piece of inductive reasoning because right, it, it, it you could conf- it was confirmed by all of the observations that we had of swans up to that point and it could reliably predict what kind of swans you were going to observe in the wild right. for the vast majority of cases right. until we went to that one place right. where there are black swans. And
0: so I think, yeah. like, uh, yeah, and, uh, agreed, right? But, uh, but So there's, there's those cases. There's, you know, the sun will rise tomorrow because we've seen it rise every day. And then there's, uh, the, like, the examples that get used, uh, you know, to, to, to prove these points all the time. Like, you know, you go into a room... Uh, uh, where there are three men and they're all third sons. Yeah. So you say like inductive reasoning says all men are third sons. That is to any rational person seems like a really poor, non-law-like version of induction. But I think as you look at that spectrum between all men are third sons and the sun will rise tomorrow, there's a middle point in that spectrum you can't draw a clear line. You can't draw right. a delineated line and say everything on this line falls into non-law-like and everything on this line falls into law-like, right? Which is why that, why his his riddle exists is because right. So you I mean, can't clearly say these are law-like and these are not Right,
2: law-like. but that's, I think, cuts to the heart of Goodman's project, which is that he is trying to, he thinks that we should be able to formulate a rule that tells us which, uh, predictions or which uh, uh, generalizations are law-like and which ones
0: aren't. He thinks you should be able to, but himself can't. Right. come up with that.
1: Right. Well, there, <laughs> there, there has been in the last, like even as recently like twenty or thirty years, the idea of. Um, meta studies have you have you seen this like scientific literature yeah, yeah yeah so so you you can perform a uh, a study based on the scientific method to evaluate a uh, some pharmaceuticals or uh, a particular test case for a medical condition and you can then perform a, a different study uh, against a different set of data but the meta study will evaluate uh, how accurate your studies are based on the metadata around the processes that can be generalized in between different studies. So it can actually be be used as a way to predict the nature of how accurate the results of a study can be based on the factors of those studies. For pharmaceuticals? (laughs) 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 Is that
0: that, that where that started? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the bottom line is... is all you have to, you can run 500 studies. Just one of them has to say that your drug works, and then it gets yeah. approved. But, but if, but if you, if you,
1: it's a way to try to say like, well, uh, this this study, I believe, in using uh, whatever method of inductive or deductive reasoning, is giving me good results, and and this one isn't. Is there is there any commonalities? Are there any generalizable ways we can prove that one aspect of this is contributing to the the good study, the good results, and, and, and one the bad? When you're me, you're comparing apples to apples. Or or on apples to oranges i think it's a i think maybe more details in the show notes for that one <laughs> yeah, i think so and then i'm gonna have to read the show notes
2: carefully so then so the third son's example actually comes to us from goodman and it, he contrasts it to another example of our generalization that all copper conducts electricity right which he says look that's a law-like generalization because it's confirmed by every piece of copper that we have seen. And it turns out that when we find new pieces of copper, they are also conductive. And he contrasts that to the third son example by saying that, look, you could be in a room with a bunch of guys and they're all third sons and you're probably at a Third Sun convention, though. Right. I <laughs> know. Uh, the, the example doesn't really take that possibility into account. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: but even if it does, uh, the next time you walk into a room, you're probably not again at a Third Sun convention, right. unless you're a shut-in Third Sun and you only come out <laughs> once a year for the annual Third Sun convention. Um, in which case, in uh, Las it's Vegas. also a trademark on that because it's going to be a sitcom we write.
2: The third son convention? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, Each episode will take place one year after the previous. Oh, man. Um, Anyways, but yeah, like that's pretty easily disprovable by walking into virtually any other room other than the third son convention. Well, and I
2: think that Goodman's phrasing of it is that you're not, you are probably not going to expect the next person who walks into the room to be a third son just because everyone in the room currently is a third son. So I mean, unless you're at the third son convention, like his, his, his his phrasing of the, of, of the thought experiment is you're, you're in a room and it's full of third sons. You could say, I'm going to make a generalization about people in this room, which is that, Anyone who comes into this room is a third son.
1: Like, like you're a Martian. You come down. You know nothing about our culture, and this is all the data you have at your disposal. Right? Is that it's uh, that everybody is a third son? So, <laughs> so uh, but then how
2: would but
1: and Howard, you're on you're Howard. on the third and you're on the third <laughs> rock from the sun. So maybe is it's the a TV show or oh, just this planet. Man. This planet. Okay. <laughs> that's where the, that's where <laughs> the TV show. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know.
0: Um, so uh, we used to work with a good friend of ours named Ryan and. Uh, We had uh, this. uh, We were were working with this uh, production company in the city, and one of the guys over there, his his name was Ryan. And then one day, our friend Ryan got this email invitation from him to this Ryan party, where you were only allowed to go to the party if your name was Ryan. Yeah, and you had to present. He was kind of like a, a man about town, so like he he knew a lot of people, and he could actually throw a party where. Everyone
1: at the party's name was Ryan, and, and there was a high disposition of Ryan's in the San Francisco Bay Area tech community. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, that, that was one of his suppositions. Yeah, yeah, maybe,
0: but also there was a rule where ex, where explicitly no Bryans were allowed. <laughs> what? Because, because, because too confusing. Because it was too confusing, and because like people were constantly confusing Ryan with Brian, like throughout his life. So I, I can imagine a scenario there where you where we have kind of a new a new version of the third son uh, induction problem where. It's a, you know, you walk into like all men are Ryan and you just happen to be at the Ryan party. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a a more fun example than Goodman's example. It's too bad that he's not around to Goodman sharing that with yeah. us. Yeah. Um, so I think we're at, so that kind of brings us up to speed, right? In some right. ways, which is that like for like the, the challenge that Goodman poses is, hey, we've got to find a way to distinguish between law-like generalizations and non-law-like generalizations because that will tell us which inductive conclusions are good and which ones are bad um and so he poses what he calls the new riddle of induction which is a thought experiment that i'll talk about in a minute
1: did you write a book with that title did he kind of try to brand that
2: um yeah i mean he absolutely branded it i mean the new riddle of induction is like all capital letters like tm yeah. New Riddle exactly. of Induction. tm uh nelson goodman yeah. right so we actually have to pay a royalty to his estate to okay. even talk about it on this I'll, show I'll, I'll so bleep stop it out. saying it I'll so many it times i'll bleep out all mentions of the new riddle of induction <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I fear that he wouldn't be a very rich man if if everyone had to pay royalties on that no uh, <laughs> um Uh, Not because it isn't uh, uh, well known within the philosophical community, but just because the number of academic philosophers is vanishingly small relative to the population as a whole. What if it starred teenage vampires? (laughs) (laughs) The New Riddle of Induction, Uh starring teenage vampires.
0: The New Riddle of Induction, Volume 1, and it's about teenage vampires trying to figure out if. This is your. All humans This is like your money
2: making scheme for the Goodman family? Yeah. 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 I'm trying, <laughs> trying to help him out. Yeah, <laughs> You turn this new riddle of induction <laughs> thing into, into a franchise. <laughs> into a teen vampire franchise. <laughs> so um so yeah, so what Goodman says basically is like, hey, I don't have the answer here. Like I, I don't have a way to get to the bottom of like what is good induction versus what's bad induction, but I'm gonna give you this riddle. And if we can solve this riddle then i believe we will have answered the question what counts as a law like generalization versus what doesn't count as a law like generalization and i'm going to i'm going to give you the riddle um and then sort of like tell it the best way that i can because it's complicated and then we're going to parachute out and, of uh, this segment yeah, because and then we're just going to jump to the <laughs> mid show break because if we start to talk about it it's going to get confusing for us and no one like,
0: solved it and this yeah. will be the longest podcast right. podcast
2: because <laughs> so, we're not going to solve right. it you, no one solved it and we're definitely not going to solve do, it do you
1: think there's a number of listeners uh, listening to this right now thinking like man if they had this technique why didn't they do that on every other show before <laughs> <laughs> they got too far <laughs> there's the a topic. number of people who are unsubscribing right now <laughs> yeah this is massive
2: <laughs> so why do we so i kind of want to say a few things about why i want to talk about this thought experiment or sort of lay it out for you even though we're not going to really discuss it on the show. And the first reason is that I think we couldn't really do a show about induction without mentioning the new riddle of induction because it represents sort of like the the state-of-the-art thinking. It's what professional academic philosophers are talking about right now. It's the Tesla Tesla Model S of of, of induction theory. It is, and so I think we'd be remiss if we didn't try to give an overview of it. I, the second reason I wanted to talk about it is because um, I think it's a good example of the highly technical and rigorous nature of contemporary analytic philosophy. So I think we tend to believe, and this show absolutely uh, tends to take as an assumption that uh, you know philosophy can be sort of like a layman's project where we just kind of sit around this table and like about stuff um and the ideas that we come up with are going to be just as good as the ideas that anybody else comes up with but the reality is that um that uh philosophy is a profession and people spend their entire careers thinking about these ideas and that and that some of these ideas are complicated um and rec- and understanding them and being able to explain them and being able to engage in a conversation about them takes some work can take years of work.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, literally takes years of training your mind. Right. To be able to understand, you know, formal logic and hold a certain number of concepts in your mind simultaneously. That is, you know, that's, that's no joke. It's not any different than the kind of training you undergo to perfect or master any other kind of skill. right? And, we like just quite frankly, like we don't have that
2: right. And whether and it may be the case that um, you know much of contemporary philosophy is focused on um, trying to uh, finely parse English or other natural languages in an attempt to sort of discover what words mean as a way of learning about the world. And I have a like I have a pretty strong opinion about the. Um, validity of that project, but we'll kind of put that aside for now and just say that like engaging in that kind of philosophical, philosophical discourse is a it is is a sort of
1: like lifelong endeavor. Um, I would I would personally like to see a Zero Dreams of Sushi style documentary about <laughs> philosophers. Uh, It'd be more boring than yeah, the sushi for one. for sure. <laughs> um, you don't get to see like I cooking. can understand sushi, you know, on a
0: level where that documentary is interesting. Um and entertaining, but again, like more, yeah like you reach a certain level of philosophical discussion, and it just requires a foundation, yeah that you need years of reading and studying right. to acquire
2: yeah, and so i'm gonna i'm gonna give you an overview of the of of Goodman's sort of thought experiment that he considers like the real like his new riddle of induction the, his new riddle of induction <laughs> 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 uh <laughs> Uh, writing that check to the Goodman estate um, You know, and there have been Hundreds of articles and maybe Thousands Of articles written about this ridicule, riddle And definitely this riddle This the, a rid- chronicle of riddle Yes <laughs> uh, and, and dozens of books You know, so this is like a topic that is Sort of, it's gonna sound Really complicated When I say it, uh, when I tell you The riddle finally after talking about it so much and then you'll google it and find yeah so of- there are going to be lots of links in the in the show notes to, um to to read more about this is
1: there has, has anybody published a graphic novel on the subject would that be useful? Uh, no
2: I, that's a great spin off idea um the new riddler of induction tell us the riddle okay okay so- tell us the riddle maybe
1: we've heard it and we just haven't understood it <laughs>
2: So so remember that what Goodman wants is for us to figure out which generalizations are law-like. Part of what we need in order to do that is to look for predicates that are projectable. So in the sentence, emeralds are green, emeralds is the subject, and green is the predicate. And green is a projectable predicate in this example uh, in the sense that we can use it to make law-like generalizations such as all emeralds are green. So the in the riddle he asks us to imagine a predicate called grew. And the definition of grew is things that are green that we've observed and things that are blue that we haven't observed before some fixed date, like in the future, like say January first, twenty twenty. And so all our observations up until now support both the statement that emeralds are green and the statement that emeralds are grew. But now imagine another predicate called bleen, and the definition of bleen is things that are blue that we observe after January 1st, 2020, and things that we don't observe that are green after that date. So the way that breaks down is that on January 1st, 2020, all the emeralds will go from being both green and grew to being both green and bling. So there, no emeralds are going to change colors in this scenario, but... There's no magic. There's no magic, uh, but... And, it, and if you were walking around in the world using your word green, all the emeralds are going to appear green to you before 2020 and after 2020. So grew and... But you've got this problem, which is that before that date, every observation you make is going to confirm the hypothesis that emeralds are grew and green but after that date all your observations are going to confirm the hypothesis that all emeralds are green and bleen and so now you have you have a problem because you can't um uh, you can't use grew and bleen uh to make uh that grew isn't projectable and bleen isn't projectable you can't use those words to make law like predictions in the same way that you can use blue and green to make law-like predictions and so grew and bleen aren't like predicates that we have in the english language they're sort of different kind of words than the words that we use but Nelson's point is like, well, hey, we've given these words a precise definition so they could easily be words right. that show up in other natural right. languages. New
0: words appear in language all the exactly. time, and they're given new definitions, right. and these are two hypothetical words that I'm creating. Here's their definitions.
1: Right. Kind of Chomsky-like. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and,
0: and
2: and grew is, is not a word that we can use to make a law like generalization, and green is a word that we can use to make a law like generalization. And so Goodman's new riddle of induction is... Tell me what the difference between green and grew is. When all of our observations support both of them. Why is the word green different from the word grew? Like, give me a way to differentiate between those two types of words, and you will now have given me a way to differentiate between law-like and non-law-like predictions. And then he promptly croaks and doesn't answer that question for us. Mid-show break. Hey, everybody. We just wanted to take a minute to thank you for listening and ask for your help. If you like what you're hearing, do us a favor and head over to iTunes to give us a review. We don't care if you give us Groove Stars or Bleen Stars as long as you give us five stars. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Ratings, reviews, and subscriptions are what really determine whether we get noticed and give us the best chance of making the show successful. We'd really appreciate the support. Now back to the show.
1: Welcome back. Chad lovers. If you haven't had enough Chad, <laughs> let's lead off with some uh, extracurricular Chadworth uh, value right here. <laughs> yeah. That... So, 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 second half of the show, we get into all the random
0: stuff that we came across while we were researching today's topic. Yeah. And uh, so, if
2: you weren't, if you're not already tired of hearing me talk about GRU, then I'm going to talk about. Despicable ag- me. <laughs> you know, I didn't do any research on that because I got. Well, not
0: GRU. Then- Title character, well, the title character from Despicable Me is whether or not he's named after
2: Nelson. Goodman's- I didn't because I went after a different Gru. Okay, Ooh, which um, Gru? Gru goes back as a sort of pop culture reference to um, Jack Vance's science fiction uh, series called The Dying Earth, where he f- first uh, introduced the Gru as a as a predator uh, in his in in his in the universe of the Dying Earth, and he described it as being part ocular bat, part unusual hoon, and part man. As opposed to a regular hoon. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that listeners of our show uh, may uh, recognize the, the phrase grew and the monster grew from the early video game uh, called Zork, uh, which was essentially a text-based uh, choose your own adventure video game that came out of MIT in the mid '70s, and it was one of the first. Um, it was one of the first games to kind of find its way to, um, the new home to, computer. To the new home computer, so exactly. I
0: came across a little bit about this. MIT made
2: this game. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean this is what
2: computer scientists were doing in the mid 70s
1: um uh, in the 80s Oh, uh, the we. The, 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 <laughs> <laughs> the, mo- the most popular uh, computer home computer in, in Britain was actually manufactured and designed by by the BBC the BBC micro micro uh was created by uh ATV what year what year was this like early 80s yeah
2: wait hold on are we talking about gru or are we talking about Australian technology <laughs> well, we're... I want to I want to get me some sweet <laughs> sweet we're, gru we're, <laughs> we're
1: drifting
0: i mean okay our early computer was the Tandy TRS-80.
2: Right, and you could actually play Zork on the TRS-80. Did dad play Zork on the TRS-80. You know, I don't know if we ever had Zork. We had some. Games gotta get dad that on the show to answer whether, like, whether he played right, Zork. Let's have a whole episode he with our weed dad with yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, I think he confirmed that he did not. Oh yeah, update for listeners: Dad did not smoke weed. With, with Edmund Gettier. That he remembers. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, if
0: you asked Dad for a list of the people that he remembers smoking weed with in college, it's going to be shorter than the number of people that he actually smoked weed with in college. Uh, Column B might contain Edmund <laughs> Gettier.
2: <laughs> right. Um, Anyways, Zork? So Zork. So in the in the video game Zork, which is a, a text-based sort of choose-your-own-adventure game, uh, there's a monster called the Gru. Um, and... The Gru is first mentioned in the game, um, uh, along with the following description. It is pitch black. You are likely to be eaten by a Gru. And if you type, what is a Gru, you're told, the Gru is a sinister lurking presence in the dark places of the earth. Its favorite diet is adventurers, but its insatiable appetite is tempered by its fear of light. No Gru has ever been seen by the light of day, and few have survived its fearsome jaws to tell the tale. Nice. Yeah.
1: Do you think that's like short for gruesome?
2: Uh, yeah, it is short for gruesome. That's where the Jack Vance um, mm. sort of original reference, but they, people think that's what's sort of like the derivation. The, the word
1: grue in French means crane, the bird. I'm not sure if that has any.
2: Thanks, uh, Mark. Nope, <laughs> nope, nope. Random, <laughs> random, random.
1: Mark knowledge.
2: Uh, so uh, yeah, and 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 actually, but um, it is
0: so like apparently has no tie to the Gru and Bleen, uh Nelson yeah. Goodman reference, right? But I, but is coincidentally weird in that it, it remains in darkness and has never been seen in mm-hmm. the same way that Gru and Blean are these. Future states or future a descriptions of things, things. that are, that are yet to be seen, and in every single thought experiment, exist at a place in time that no one has seen yet.
1: Mm, that's nice. And maybe the people that have seen them are being devoured.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, I mean, the two words have different etymology. Right, like, right, right for for Vance and for Zork, it comes from gruesome, and and for Goodman, it's the mashup of of. Uh, green and blue, right? So emeralds aren't
0: grew and they aren't Bleen. Mark, you've got something on emeralds.
2: <laughs> I do. Thanks for the transition, Paco. <laughs> Thanks for the transition. Oh, do you guys? You don't want to hear about how I'm playing Zork online right now? Hi. How are you doing? Where are you
0: right now in yeah. <laughs> Zork? Have you opened the door?
2: Uh, yeah. I'm. Um. What are you playing? I'm right it on? at the beginning, there's like an emulator, like a. a, a, a web-based version of the original game. This is how it starts. West of house. There is an open field west of a white house with a boarded front door. There is a small mailbox here. A rubber mat saying, Welcome to Zork, lies by the door. And then there's just a text prompt. I'm just trying to give people the experience of Zork if they haven't had it. Right, What did you enter? Um, I think that first I entered... um, Lift up corner of mat. (laughs) Oh, I didn't. I opened the mailbox.
0: I think Zork was also the first game in uh, this genre of games that allowed you to type compound Hmm. like directions where like if you found a key and um, you also found a goblet and then you came across a treasure chest, you could say put key and goblet in treasure chest. Right. And in previous games, I mean, this is where the MIT genius comes in. (laughs) In previous games, you'd have to say put key in treasure chest enter put goblet in treasure chest enter
2: so Um, I looked under the mat I typed look oh you just did did. look under mat what happened there is nothing interesting here god damn it there should be a key (laughs) (laughs) no but if you (laughs) let's see what happens if we open we'll put the link to this in the show notes guys because I know you're dying to play it open mailbox you open the mailbox revealing a small leaflet Mm.
0: Can we just play Zork for the rest of the <laughs> shade? Like those class that just play, uh, yeah,
1: Rangers only like <laughs> <and> dragons. <laughs>
2: uh, Welcome to Zork, says mm. the leaflet.
1: So mysterious, I know. Okay,
2: <laughs> emeralds. <laughs> okay, go, Mark.
1: Emeralds. Um, apparently, Napoleon gave Josephine emeralds as a present, uh, and as she sat for a portrait. Uh, it was before it was publicly announced that Napoleon was divorcing her. She asked for the artist uh, to quote, "paint me in emeralds. I want them to represent the underlying freshness of my grief." Which is a a long uh, historical reference to uh, the unluckiness of emeralds. Emeralds are unlucky. Yeah, yeah I didn't know that. Uh, uh, the, in China, stop wearing this uh, emerald uh, in, belt in buckle. <laughs> In China the the colour of emeralds green is also associated with uh with unluckiness. So a a, a cuckolded uh Chinese gentleman uh, might say he is wearing a green hat when his wife or girlfriend cheats on him. Do you like my use of the word cuckolded? <laughs> I do. Yeah. Yes. I thought
2: it was cuckolded. Cuckolded? <laughs> 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 well, that's how we say it in Not Canada. In Australia. Yeah. That's Canada. What we, we say it in Canada differently. <laughs> okay, great.
1: Uh, So I do do want to uh, touch on uh, some of the most famous uses of the terms induction uh, and deduction in popular culture, uh, and those belong to uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and his wonderful works, uh, The Tales of Sherlock Holmes, where most people know the phrase deduction from. Um, And uh, understandably, Conan Doyle, who was an author and wasn't a, a philosopher or a logician, didn't really get the idea of what deduction was, and most of uh, the the tricks, the uh, the, the uh, what uh, Sherlock Holmes referred to as deduction. Yeah, he wasn't a philosopher or a diligent researcher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was. He was. He was. He wasn't even a good writer in some respects. He, in terms of continuity, in one short story, uh, he he forgot that uh, uh, Doctor John Watson's first name was John and was and called him James through the entire story. Yeah. Which was turned out to be his middle name or some stuff like that, or did he
0: later forget what what Holmes's first name was? And then <laughs> like, well, there's a thing where he had to like make up like, oh, well, that was his middle name, and his yeah. wife was calling him. So, by his so
1: Doctor John Watson's middle name uh, is Hamish, and uh, Hamish is a Scottish version of James. Therefore, it's like, oh no, she was uh, yeah. calling him James because yeah. that's an English version of his middle nice name. Nice work. Yeah. So Colin Doyle got deduction wrong. Yeah, he got deduction wrong. So Holmes would often say deduction would, would be the art of removing um, uh, any any uh, any fact, uh, no matter how uh, unlikely. Uh, whatever you're left with is the truth, no matter how improbable. Right. So the idea of removing things. But a lot of times the, the in the stories when he uh, landed on particular pieces of evidence and then came up with a conclusion, it was uh, neither deductive or inductive but uh, abductive. Uh, a, a, another type of reasoning which yeah. is uh, where Do you even, e- even more dodgy than induction <laughs> yeah right? so is
2: just making shit up is abduction
0: Um, I mean f- Mark you, you've I know you've you've read about this I did a little bit of reading about it as well but from from what I could tell it's kind of like the example that's given for abduction is uh, you look at a pool table and you see that the eight ball is moving towards a pocket you didn't see what Caused the eight ball to move, but through abduction, you remove all of the really unlikely things like God reached down through the ceiling and flicked it with his finger. Um, and you kind of assume the most likely inductive causes that might have made the eight ball move towards a pocket, like the cue ball hit it, right? So it's kind of this like snap judgment, like you see something. Happening without seeing the cause, and you, 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 your 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 mind kind of intuitively eliminates all of the ridiculous things that have could have caused that, and narrows down the assumptions about the things that could have caused it into the most likely. So it's like it's even more loose than inductive reasoning. Like it's a it's, and I think that the reason that this that that this um probably comes up in the reason that Holmes is using abductive reasoning so much is because he's trying to solve crimes where he's seeing the results of things, the results of crimes and murders and whatever, where he didn't see what caused them. Right. Right. So he's like jumping to these conclusions and in like a really interesting, like literary, uh,
1: Mm -hmm. you know, way, but, it, but, it was it was it was amazing um, and really groundbreaking when he did use this method of storytelling, this abductive reasoning style. Because up till that date, there were detective stories. He revolutionised the format because the uh, the big payoff previously was, uh, and the butler did it, and right. somebody <laughs> appears right at the last act to say like, oh, I did it for this reason. Right. But there was never a, a, an understandable cause. There was never the chance that somebody reading the story there was like could never the detective work. Right? Yeah, right. So you yeah. never never yeah. showed never showed you working.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of things, like, there there, there are things about um, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Conan Doyle's writing where either he got things wrong, like deductive reasoning, but then there are a lot of, like, weird things that get layered on top of that that we think about that are uh, intrinsically tied to Sherlock Holmes that, that weren't even in mm-hmm. um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's writing, like the elementary My Dear Watson phrase, like, never occurs in any of his writing right like yeah, that's the, kind of the first, something that the gets... first
1: time it appears is in a film um made in 1929 so you know 30 years after you know the time period and it's using you know apocryphally he did use the word elementary once in the canon there's 56 short stories and four novels um I've been rewatching the uh, Stephen Moffat BBC series recently. The commentary is Mark is not looking at his notes right now. <laughs> <laughs> for uh, listeners at it, home. <laughs> it's, uh, for, from a, a philosophical point of view and from a logistic logis- point of view, most of what Sherlock Holmes could be considered to be doing is interpolating. Um, and and some of the best criticism. If you if you want to get a, a big Sherlock Holmes fan who was also a, a logical mathematician, statistician, and um, philosopher, I'd definitely recommend the work of Charles, my namesake, Sanders Peirce, uh, oh, wow. um, who who has a great um, study where he kind of takes apart a number of Sherlock Holmes's uh, abductive reasoning. There's a quote he starts a, a very famous paper with, where uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, in the 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 book uh, Sign of Four says Watson, I do not guess, and then uh, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce uh, uh, defines abductive reasoning to: it's basically guessing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> kind of
2: is. Um, so I, um, I looked under the mat, and there wasn't anything there. Yeah, we, but did, we went over that. We I know. But through. so then I said, "Get mat." oh did we pick up the mat? And mm. it said, "Taken." Nice. Oh, so Matt's gonna we, come in. We, anyway. we have the mat now. Nice. Okay. Okay. Um, can, so, can,
1: can I have one more uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes um, uh, piece of trivia? That yeah, I no, sure. It? We'll make this a two-hour-long yeah. episode. <laughs> uh, can <laughs> I? I'll ask you a question. What? Uh, what did? Uh, what did uh, uh, Watson do twice as much as Sherlock Holmes in the canon of fifty-six short stories and four novels? Masturbate. <laughs> Very close. <laughs> the answer is ejaculate. What? What? <laughs> what? Oh, because that's like uh, yeah, yeah. There, you were, tell there us. were twenty-three ejaculations in total, um, eleven belonging to Watson. Um, uh, Holmes referring to Watson's ejaculations of wonder uh, right. and once uh, on one occasion Watson ejaculates from his very heart um, <laughs> well that's a yeah. neat trick uh, there's actually uh, a line uh, so uh, he sat as I dropped off to sleep and uh, he sat with a sudden ejaculation causing me to wake up um, so in these are okay. cases yes, <laughs> we're going to have to put a double explicit rating on this podcast so ejaculation in, in this context is uh, exclaiming uh, as if from nowhere Jeez, um, okay. there's, there's one, uh, there's one uh, our uh, ratings have just skyrocketed with junior high school boys <laughs> in a locker room oh, making it's about dumb zork jokes and ejaculating yeah. <laughs> hey. uh, there, there was a character called Phelps who ejaculated three times during the story of the naval treaty uh, this, was... what are you reading what are you reading <laughs> And another character um, the, the husband <laughs> (laughs) uh, Mark uh, is reading his notes. Yeah, I am (laughs) reading. uh, The the husband of uh, Mrs. uh, Sinclair, in one story, ejaculated from a second-floor window. (laughs) Oh, right. Okay, wait.
2: So once again, does anyone have anything that's actually about the history of philosophy? I do, for once. once. So
0: David Hume, who we kind of started this show off with, his his work on kind of raising the problem of induction, he, he was part of... Uh, what is known as the Scottish Enlightenment, which is kind of a subset of the Age of Enlightenment, which is a period in European history where, you know, a lot of critical... There's kind of an explosion of critical thinking and really interesting thinking and progress in, in a number of areas from, you know, science, philosophy, chemistry, astronomy, agriculture, poetry, technology... civics politics and there's this weird pocket of it or this kind of you know when i when i when we started doing the research in this or if you come across um the scottish enlightenment it seems like kind of this anomalous pocket of world-leading thinking that suddenly erupts in um in scotland kind of towards the second half of the age of enlightenment you know kind of towards the end of um, of Newton's life or his career you know so like the age of enlightenment is going on in in western Europe primarily in the late 1600s first half of the 1700s with Francis Bacon and Descartes and John Locke and Kant and Sir Isaac Newton and then all of a sudden there's this kind of explosion of it in Scotland. And even the rest of Europe and even England and the rest of Britain are kind of looking at Scotland and saying, this is where all of the great thinking is happening now. And so I was just kind of curious, like, why did that happen and what was the cause of this? Like, Scotland's not a huge place from a population standpoint. It's kind of remote, you know, in terms of its geography in Europe. Um, and there's this show that I think, Chad, you and I, I – I know that I saw it um, growing up um, on public television, and I think this is probably something you saw too. And, Mark, we've talked about this show before. It's called Connections, and it's this yeah. really interesting interesting BBC show. Mark, what's the guy's name who hosts this? James See C-Show
1: Notes. Yeah, anyway. See show Notes, yeah. Anyways, show notes,
0: yeah. Um, it, it's a really interesting show that talks about the history of – inventions and ideas and kind of travels back in time and talks about all the little things that happen in different places all over the world that you know they might start with like the invention of um the first cattle drawn plow and how that leads to the space shuttle so i was kind of interesting interested to figure out like why what were the causes of the scottish enlightenment why did this kind of remote you know, place in Europe become the center of yeah. all critical thinking and, and, and this explosion of thought. Well, so it seems like the the, the, man, really, I big, seat here. the really big thing that happened was in um, 1707, Scotland united with England and became part of Great Britain. Under James the First. Yeah, and what happened was all of the politicians and all of the royalty and all of the people who were like government bureaucrats moved from Scotland to London. And what happened was all of the philosophers and scientists and doctors and lawyers, and all these people who were critical thinkers, who were really well educated, who were kind of the middle class before Scotland became part of Great Britain, suddenly became the leaders of Scotland. And so you had kind of this the, you, you had what was kind of the end of the first part of the Enlightenment happening. You had you know, the rise of all these great thinkers in Europe, Sir Isaac Newton and all the people that, that we mentioned previously. Yeah. And then you had this exodus of all the people who were running the, com- the country, all these bureaucrats and politicians and royalty leaving this kind of leadership gap in Scotland, which allowed all the people who had spent their life up until that point. Thinking and doing scientific research and reading all the great philosophy of uh, Western history, it it left this leadership gap for those people to kind of rise up and take power. And it let thinkers and scientists and philosophers lead the country. Right. Um, So it was kind of this weird, you know, like leadership vacuum. um,
2: And so when they were leading the country, they were like, okay, new rule, everybody philosophy well no
0: but basically like everybody do critical thinking and critical thinking and this was kind of the twist of um, the Scottish enlightenment that the uh, the age of enlightenment up to then didn't have was critical thinking with the explicit purpose of making the individual life better or making the group better so instead of just like critical thinking to gain knowledge and a more true understanding of the world or the universe Gaining
1: that knowledge with the purpose of making life better, yeah. Because the, the the Enlightenment, as we know it in in England, was led by the Mecca of the Royal Society, which was a um, uh, an organization created by the monarchy to help perpetuate a lot of the the standards behind, you know, the aristocracy and the, uh, the 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 senior classes.
0: Um. So the last thing I would say, um, that's kind of related to the Scottish Enlightenment and David Hume, which is where we kind of started the show, was. Uh, one of my favorite quotes that I came across of David Hume's, which I think kind of embodies the spirit of this show, which is, quote, the truth springs from arguments amongst friends.
2: Ah, that's, that's a good quote. I had another David Hume quote that I also thought was relevant to this show, which I'll dig up out of my own Help notes. me out of this book. <laughs> <laughs> generally <My> best <laughs> Scottish impersonation accent <laughs> yes, <laughs> fucking <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but you know what's funny is do your Sean Connery impersonation. Junior
1: That's, I can only say one word. <laughs> you can't say you, you can, I am the last one. No. Can you can you say you're the man now, dog? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you can say that, Mark. You are no I can't. <laughs> no, <that was> great. <laughs> that was, it started off great.
2: <laughs> All right, David Hume quote number two. Generally speaking, the errors in religion are dangerous. Those in philosophy only ridiculous. Yeah, That's the, uh, the
1: equivalent of saying like uh, this, this: this marketing problem isn't gonna, isn't going to cure cancer. Right. <laughs> um,
0: uh, one of the other things that I ran across too, just to like, and I don't have this quote off the top of my head, but apparently, kind of in this transition where all of the um, the leadership and the politicians and the royalty kind of left Scotland and, and and moved to London, there was this open transition and publicly acknowledged movement in Scottish culture to embrace british and english culture in order to kind of legitimize their thinking and their opinions within great britain and kind of out english the english and there's some great quotes and we'll put them in the in the show notes of david hume trying to encourage the scottish to to stop talking so scottish oh no that's 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 a big thing like yeah. in edinburgh
1: now you can there's there's a, there's, a uh, there's an accent the edinburgh accent which is more english than english even today it's it's a very very calm speaking voice. it's it's an amazing uh, weird enclave up there yeah he gives a
0: specific example of how to say bread and butter instead of butter and bread and the butter and bread scottish version you know to an american or an Englishman is almost unintelligible, and he's basically like, "Stop saying this stuff that makes us sound so kooky and <laughs> Scottish and rural, mm-hmm. because yeah. we're the thought leaders of the world now." People, yeah, like it, right. you
1: know, it, part, partly it's because it's very rural up there, but the, the, the Scotland's been conquered by Vikings and and Scandinavian uh, marauding tribes for centuries. That there's like so much Germanic up there as part of their language. That it's 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 crazy. Like the the Scottish for church is is Kirk with a K, which is directly from the Germanic. You know, if you're in Germany now, you'd say Kirk for church. It's a, it's an amazing um, cultural legacy that they have left, left behind. All
2: right, I think we got to wrap up. Um, if listeners can help me out, I am in a forest and there's a pile of leaves here, and I've tried digging through it, and I've tried raking it, and I've tried looking in it, and did you try jumping in it? No, and my iPad just died, so I can't. It's a pile of leaves, <laughs> man. Can
1: we Can we have a follow-up section in the next podcast when we find out what happens when you've, when yes. you've jump in it? All right,
0: readers, write in. Readers? Listeners? The fuck? If you're reading this podcast, <laughs> you're, you're doing re- it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> listeners, sorry, write in. Sorry, visually
1: impaired listeners. Right. Oh, oh, fuck. Edit that out. <laughs> All right.
0: Uh, only visually impaired listeners. Write in and tell us. <laughs> Should we jump in the pile of leaves? Should we burn the pile of leaves? Should we rake the pile of leaves? What should we do with the pile of leaves? At feedback at you'vegotitallwrong.net.
2: Like. Speaking of heads, I have to tell you some bad news. What? I broke
0: the head off of this Ugnaught figure. That's not an Ugnaught, dude. That's Snaggletooth. Snaggletooth. You amateur on two levels. One, I'm more disappointed that you thought that was an Ugnaught. Well, than I, I
1: can't see the head
0: of it now. So. Well, I know, but it looks nothing like an Ugnaught. You're right.
2: It doesn't. I panicked. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh uh. All right. Well, I mean, it's 30 years old or something like that at this point. I mean, that might be yours. You might have just broke the head off of your snaggletooth. All right. What is that dope belt buckle he's got, by the way? It's like Flash Gordon.